0: 520 at uh, Omega Institute. Alright. That's it on announcements. Films, check with Japan Society, that's what's up. There's Face of Another by uh, Tegashahara on uh, Friday the 19th, that's tomorrow, at 7.30 at Japan Society. That's 333 is forty-seven, seven four two three zero five one.
1: 3051 This is Citizen
0: Kafka. And Paul Romney.
1: Bidding you a goodbye. We'll be here again two weeks from tonight on Thursday, whatever the date is, two weeks from tonight. So tune in, write us. Are
0: you let sending us know a what's going
1: on. And uh, stay tuned for what I'm sure is going to be a very interesting show. Even though James isn't here, we've got a replacement. I could not believe that we could get anybody who could cover that type of show, but we definitely do. Thank you very much, and uh, have a pleasant evening. Stay tuned to WBAI 99.5 FM, paraprofessional radio in New York. I was happy in my home. Acquainted, won't you help me hide? You asked me for a once to get acquainted, just for once. party I could see the lucky guy I could have been. When her heart was set you free, keep me in your memory. When the get-acquainted waltz,
0: The preceding program was brought to you
1: live with portions on recording. You're tuned to listener-sponsored radio, WBAI, in New York, where the time is 1 a.m. Our next scheduled program, Primary Sources, this week and this summer with Peter Wilson, will be coming to you in one minute and 30 seconds. Please stay tuned.
0: Saturday night, tooling around the city, looking for something to listen to, something to do. Why not tune in to WBAI around 5 o'clock? All mixed up. Peter Beauchamp. Five to seven. Full speed ahead, Saturdays.
1: Saturdays, wow, here it comes. 5 to 7, all mixed up.
0: We hear next, Primary Sources, with Peter Wilson. Good evening, welcome to Primary Sources. My name is Peter Lamborn Wilson, and I'm sitting in for James Ursay. I'll be here tonight and next week at the uh, same time, and every Thursday, all summer, until James comes back, if he comes back. Um, of course, now he's safely off. Uh, he uh, flew out on an LL flight to uh, Tel Aviv Monday evening so he 's gone, and it 's safe to talk about him. His back is turned and uh, and Now I can tell you the real reason why James went to israel some uh, some months ago when he was up at the uh, Jewish uh, Theological uh, Seminary Library, he found in the uh, back of a book you know it 's called cartonnage this um, kind of old print rubbish that gets stuffed into the uh, binding material of old books and uh, he, he, he took this book out I think it was a copy of that Jewish magical text that he's so fond of the uh, Sefer Raziel and a piece of cartonnage fell out while he was uh, studying this I think it was a mid 18th century edition turned out to be a piece of papyrus with a map on it showing the location of the cave of hidden treasures so that's... Uh, James told everybody he was going off to study archaeology. This was only a front. He's actually going off to search for treasure. And um, he hopes to find the hidden gold of the prophets. No, that's just a joke. Just a joke. Uh, at least for now, we'll just uh, pretend that it's a joke. If um, James writes to us and tells us that he needs uh, needs money to... Uh, take an expedition out into the desert and look for the cave of hidden treasures, well, maybe we'll decide that it's not a joke and uh, make you all uh, our partners, our prayer partners, our treasure partners, which you are anyway, I'm sure. This is Primary Sources, which, uh, as if you're a regular listener, you know that uh, James usually devotes to, um, well, I guess his specialty over the past few months has definitely been the uh, apocrypha and pseudepigrapha especially the jewish and jewish and christian traditions and um this i have to say is not my precise cup of tea it's not these are not the texts that i know well um my own background is in uh islamic studies and in hinduism to a certain extent Uh, i know that james has always uh promising to do something about, uh, to do more and more about uh, Sufism and uh, Tantra, this sort of thing. Never seems to get around to it. So um, maybe while I'm in charge, we'll talk more about those things. Um, and You may remember, uh, I can't remember exactly when it was, uh, a couple of months ago I was a guest on this program and I talked about angels with James. I have actually uh, published a book on that subject and uh, talked about it all one night with James. Um, So I'm not going to do that anymore. I'll just mention the name of the book in case anybody's interested is Angels by Peter Lamborn Wilson. Uh, Last time we talked about this, I said, oh, you can run down to the Strand. They always have it because it's uh, remaindered and you can get it for $8.00 and uh on the friday afternoon after that show i myself went to the strand out of curiosity to see what had happened and i said uh, how are you doing with angels by peter lamborn wilson and i said oh no not another one and it seems that they had sold out every single copy they had as a result of our talking about it on the show before 11 in the morning friday morning and they were uh upset uh, to have another fifteen or twenty people come in and ask for it, apparently, and not be able, not be able to give it, uh, not be able to sell it to them. Now, I should have checked to see whether they, in fact, do have it now, but generally speaking they, they tend to keep it in stock. Uh, the book was remaindered, uh, like so many, uh, I mean, I say this who shouldn't, and it's, uh, it's perhaps uh, lacking in false modesty on my part, but like many good books in America get remaindered Um, I feel uh, on the remainder shelf I feel in very good company believe me and almost an elite because what happens in this country we have something here called a warehouse tax which doesn't exist in other countries and it doesn't even exist for other industries only for publishing and the result of this strange law which no one no one seems to understand the point of is that publishers are uh, taxed on their uh, Taxed on their on what they have in the warehouse at the end of the year, uh, rather than what they have actually sold during the year. Um, so, uh, if they th- if if a book doesn't take off um, like a shot as soon as it's published, well, and if the publishers themselves lose enthusiasm for it, which happens frequently, um, not necessarily for aesthetic or intellectual reasons they just dump it. And um, these uh, book butchers come in. Uh, Sometimes, actually, books get pulped. Now, that's something that I really pray never happens to me. Can you imagine? What an image, right? Being pulped. uh, It makes you shudder. Um, And this this has happened to uh, very good writers. Believe me, I can't give you any examples right off the bat. But as far as remaindering goes, I defy you. Go down to the Strand, have a look at who's on the remainder shelf and see if you don't think that it's a, a very noble company. The fact of the matter is that, that uh, for some odd reason, publishers in this country go on publishing books on subjects like spiritual spirituality um, out of habit, it almost seems. Um, unable to understand uh, that... Um, they should all uh, become very modern and be bought up by, by Gulf and Western or Time Life and, and give up being uh, being publishers of uh, serious literature, serious scholarship, and just like everybody else in the business, go for the big one, go for the blockbuster, go for the million-dollar book, go for the Times bestseller list, and, and uh, the heck with everything else. Forget it. It's, uh, it doesn't exist. Now, in England, the situation is not like that. Angels is still in print in England. They sell, uh, I don't know, judging by my royalty checks, they sell uh, 20 or 30 copies every year. Uh, But that doesn't matter. They're not taxed on what's in their warehouse. They're only taxed on those 20 or 30 or whatever 100 copies that they sell. So uh, um, provided that they have room in in a warehouse, they can keep a a title in print forever and ever. Uh, There's a famous story in publishing of Oxford University Press has had a book in print since the early 18th century. That's in print since the early 18th century. It's a dictionary of Chaldean, uh, a book that I'm sure James would like to get his hands on. The the date is 1738 or something like that, and the original first edition is still being sold by Oxford University Press, so that's England for you. Well, um, again, I say this uh, program is called Primary Sources and it usually delves back into genuine primary sources. And this is a a structure which I certainly approve of, and I certainly enjoy hearing James do it, but I'm going to sort of break the rule, at least this first week, and instead of going back to a primary source, I'm going to go to a very secondary source indeed, uh, an article by myself. Um, I have a reason for doing it, and I think that through this article, we will eventually get to uh, where we should be which is the primary sources themselves the um, perhaps the, the especially uh, um, the primary sources of various islamic sects which i'm interested in and that i hope to uh, share my enthusiasm for with you and then uh, eventually if things go on long enough we we'll, we might get to uh, to Hinduism, to Tantra, and possibly, gosh, possibly even to the Far Eastern traditions. Uh, Taoism is a subject of particular interest to me. And um, we also, uh, later on in the summer, we'll have guests, I think, I hope. Uh, I've already spoken to uh, one friend of mine who, by the way, contributed that wonderful piece of music that we started out with. Um, and he uh, he is uh, he has agreed to come on the show. Well, maybe in a month or so. Uh, he's very busy with his PhD thesis at the moment, and uh, if any of you uh, have ever done that, you know how insane that gets. So he can barely stand to think of anything except uh, early Shiism, which is what he's doing his thesis on. But he's also very musical, and we have a lot of musical friends in common, a lot of ethnomusicological friends, a lot of orientalismo fanatics, and later on, in fact, I'll be playing uh, a little bit of uh, uh, some records that were produced by a mutual friend of ours in France, who was an old friend of mine in Iran, in the old days. That piece of music, by the way, was from a, uh, an album called Turkey, A Musical Journey, uh, produced by Ecur Spurel and the program notes are by Tarik Bulut. I just love to say these names. And that was a uh, very, um, uh, it was almost perhaps unique, that cut. I haven't heard uh, this kind of music on a record anywhere. I did hear a little bit of it on, uh, on a uh, PBS broadcast about the Ottomans recently. What that was, was military music. Now, the Turks invented military music when the Turkish armies came rampaging into uh, um, Europe in the uh, what was it the 15th century yes into Vienna uh, oh, well I see there's a the note actually tells us something about this so let me just r- I'll read the note it's called mehter music and it's associated with the uh, Janissaries who themselves were um, uh, a Sufi sect as well as being as it, as it says here, the, the band of the first professional army in Europe, organized in 1320 during Sultan Urhan's reign. Generally composed of 66 musicians, it was augmented to 77 when the Sultan himself led a campaign, including seven each of zurna, uh, davul, burozan, which is a trumpet, zil, and nakare, small kettle drum the gigantic küs, or timbal, kettle drums, borne on horseback were added on the battlefield. Europe was exposed to the sound of Mehter music during the Turkish-Ottoman sieges of Vienna in 1529 and 1683, when the Turkish army numbered a million soldiers, and traces of Mehter influence survive in various Alaturka movements, Turkish suites, and even operas by Gluck, Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, and Weber, the Metter band, suppressed along with the Janissaries in eighteen twenty six was later restored as a folkloric group, uh, which means that it was pickled and preserved. but we can still get an idea what it was what it must have been like, apparently um in the sixteenth century the europeans had still never come up with the idea of military music and when they went into battle the most they had was i guess drums or i think the the ancient romans had a certain kind of trumpet that they might uh, sound various signals but uh, someone could correct me if i'm wrong about this but i think it's really true that the turks invented the idea of military music and when the europeans first heard it so the legend goes they were absolutely horrified and uh, uh, ran like, uh, like frightened ants from the, uh, just from the band of the Ottoman army. Well, um, I don't know whether that legend is true or not, but uh, it's extremely, extremely stirring music, and I guess it's, uh, it's really behind, it's the music behind all, in a sense, behind all our military music. Well, <coughs> I don't want to be um, a militarist about it, Um, This is, if anything, a very peaceful show. Uh, But it certainly was stirring, wasn't it? I just thought I'd stir you up there at the beginning. Later on, we can uh, get very sleepy with some uh, Persian classical music. I remember the first time I was ever introduced to Persian classical music, a friend of mine told me back in the 60s that he had met this Persian dentist. And the dentist said, you must come and and listen to to our Persian music with us. We listen to it and and we go to sleep and uh, my friend was very puzzled as to uh, being a jazz a jazz fanatic at the time he was puzzled how anyone could think that this was the right thing to do to music but uh, in fact later on we'll be talking a lot more about mystical music and it really is true that if you don't go into a spiritual state as a result of hearing this music you're very likely to go to sleep because uh, well my guess from a purely vulgar materialist point of view would be that the brain waves that are set up by this music are either very meditative or very snoozy, depending on uh, whether you um, make an effort of will uh, to direct your listening in the right way. As the Sufis so often say, it's not what the music is, it's important, it's who's listening. And one might say how one listens as well. Um, Because uh, I think, you may disagree with me, I think that in this age of electronic music, the passivity, I mean, uh, I should say of recorded music, not electronic music, I mean electronically recorded music. The, the, the listener has been put into an ever more and more passive situation. Um, we don't actively participate when we listen to music. And this is one reason why I don't like to inundate myself with recorded music. I was just talking with Sydney about why in fact I don't listen to a, a great deal of radio. And this uh, this is really one of the reasons. I think that music is something terribly, terribly vital and important. And when I do get up the energy and the will to listen to music with the will and the energy that it demands, then it's, to me, the most important of all the arts. And I think it's for that reason that, um, paradoxically enough, I don't want to listen to that many records. <coughs> Somehow... I don't know. Could I go so far as to say, now James really would disagree with me on this—that even the act of recording music cheapens it to a certain extent. Is that fair? I don't know. James certainly. James and I have argued about this for hours. Um, James is not a uh, a high fidelity fanatic, as you uh, as you friends of James well know. He uh, he almost prefers scratchy old 78s. And uh, for a very interesting reason, which I think ties in with my spiritual take on music. And that is, when he's not distracted by the beauty of the recording technology, um, he can concentrate with his intellect and his soul on what the music is and what it means. And the fact that it's a scratchy old 78... um, it almost gives what, what what Bertolt Brecht called alienation, and, and it, that's in the positive sense of the word. You don't sink into it the way you do into this blended modern high-fidelity music that you can uh, jam uh, earphones on your head and just vanish off into the catatonic never-never land of uh, listening pleasure. Um, instead, uh, this scratchy old 78 distances you from the Hmm, how can we put it? From the uh, visceral aspects of listening to music, and concentra- allows you to concentrate instead on the intellectual and spiritual aspects of listening to music. And uh, well, I for one love to listen to James when he's intellectually analyzing a piece of music. And it somehow seems to me that if, uh, if the music he was playing were were this lush, ultra high fidelity, multi track uh, bombard you with uh, with uh, with infinite feelings, that he wouldn't be able to come up with uh, some of the nifty uh, intellectual takes, analyses of music that he gives, especially on his Sunday show, which I, I uh, not being a musicologist, really appreciate and really feel that I'm getting a lot out of. Anyway, that's a digression. Um, I don't, uh, I don't want to begin these this series of programs with music because that would just be too much of a jump away from the format that you're used to but eventually when i get some of these people to come around if i do karim crow is uh the friend who loaned me the records for tonight and i have another friend named zev i won't tell you his last name yet because i don't know whether he's going to want to be on yet who's an expert and i mean expert in uh turkish spiritual music and his collection must be really something fabulous Tonight, I just brought a few um, records, which anybody can get. Later on, we'll be having tapes that were made at various Sufi meetings in uh, oh, uh, Aleppo, Sanandaj, which is the capital of Persian Kurdistan, um, Cairo, uh, various, other, uh, various other things, uh, exorcism music and uh, tapes made by our dear, dear friend Jean During, a French ethnomusicologist who, as I say, was my very ancien ami, my very old friend in um, Tehran in the old, old days, and uh, taught me, taught me everything that I know about Persian music virtually except what I learned uh, in an experiential sense by um, attending these uh, Sufi sessions myself. But then, of course, you don't get the kind of analysis from a bunch of dervishes whirling around in uh, Kurdistan are not going to sit down and tell you, to take apart the music uh, feature by feature and um, tell you what it means and be able to compare it to other eastern traditions and to western traditions and so forth and so on. That's what Jean was great for. He uh, he satisfied the westerners urge for the intellectual analysis at the s- through which we, as a people, I think, are inclined to reach in, reach inward, reach inward towards the heart, uh, in Sufi terms, through our heads. Whereas in the East, perhaps it's the other way around. I know uh, my what seemed to me to be perfectly innocent curiosity in the w- in the East about intellectual matters or, or even historical matters that I would ask various gurus and mursheds and. Uh, dervishes and yogis and whatnot and they would always say oh these are just intellectual matters never mind that it's not important you can get it from books and of course the kind of questions I was asking you can't get from books otherwise I wouldn't have been asking them I can read I've read the books And the questions I would ask would be things, questions that had occurred to me on the basis of my reading and uh, on the basis of conversations with other people. And I was always inevitably put down. So eventually I just stopped asking those kind of questions and I would ask questions only from the heart. I mean, you know, you can do that too. I can do that too. Anybody can do that too. It just seems to be that that's the way the Sufis want it. They don't want to talk about analysis. They don't want to analyze why a certain kind of music makes them fall into what they call hal, into an ecstasy or into a spiritual state. And that's fine. I mean, I don't think that they should. But here, at Primary Sources, we are definitely interested in delving into the intellectual side of things. We are definitely interested in the comparative approach. We are not so much interested in telling you that our hearts are in the right places. They may be or they might not be. Um, We're not pushing a spiritual path something that james has said over and over again and i'm with him a hundred percent however i have to admit that i'm perhaps not as uh hmm, what's the word coldly objective or i'm not as capable of being as coldly objective as james can be about certain things i know that people are constantly challenging challenging him to say well what do you really believe what is your path really and he never he never says he never he never admits to uh, to a prejudice in favor of one of the texts or traditions that he's discussing over another. And I I will try to stick to that kind of objectivity, but I have to admit, maybe it's a factor of my relative um, hmm, inexperience on the radio, or maybe it's just me. I'm a bit of a polemicist. I I like to push a point of view. And I think as uh, as we get into this, uh, my first source for the program primary in that sense although it's as I say since it's by me it has to be considered very secondary um, I think that you'll uh, you'll see that I'm mm, pushing a certain point of view I'm pushing at any rate the value the spiritual value of precisely the kind of um, analytical approach that results in uh, attitudes at odds with orthodoxy. Now, um, the obvious term that I'm uh, circling around here is heresy. <coughs> and in fact, this article appeared first in, um, well, it didn't appear, f- let, me, I'll give you, let me give you the whole history of this article. I belong to a strange little organization called the Muhyiddin Ibn Arabi Society. It was founded, I think, in 1974 and by a Turkish gentleman, by the name of Bulent Rauf, who's an absolutely wonderful man, and happens to be a descendant of Ibn Arabi. Uh, And if you don't know who who Ibn Arabi was, well, we have a lot of ground to cover, because if there was a single utmost important Sufi of all times, it was undoubtedly Ibn Arabi. He is the great watershed figure. Uh, Before him... You got your primitive Sufism, and after him, you got your classical Sufism. And he's the one who uh, marks the uh, the great shift over from what might be called the earl- more earlier, more pietistic, more emotional, and more uh, mm, organizational, fraternal type of origins of Sufism towards the scholastic, the incorporation of scholasticism, scholastic philosophy, gnosticism.